0: You're listening to Pod News Extra. More stuff from Pod News and the Pod News Weekly Review. This podcast is hosted and sponsored by Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout gives you easy and powerful tools with free learning materials and remarkable customer support. It even includes dynamic audio, like this. Get started free today at Buzzsprout.com joined by jordan harbinger often referred to as the larry king of podcasting he's a recovering wall street lawyer turned interview talk show host we'll unpack all of that in a second jordan has hosted a top 50 itunes podcast for over 12 years he doesn't look old enough by the way and he receives over 5 million downloads per month making the jordan harbinger show one of the most popular podcasts in the world jordan hello how are you
1: Hey, thanks for having me on and it's funny because every i haven't heard that sort of intro in a while and i'm like where does it say 12 years because this is my 16th year now wow podcasting. Okay. your website
0: you need to update
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe i should edit that it shows you when we made the website that's a nice timestamp. i'm going to go ahead and ah, make a little note and to do us right now edit website about page uh, <laughs> now <laughs> that's really funny
0: You've reached nearly 800 shows, which is amazing in itself, 12, well, 16 years, as you say. Let's start off with what got you into podcasting before we get into some of the amazing things you've done with podcasting, but why did you get into it?
1: So fun 2020 hindsight edited fake version of the story that all these entrepreneurs and business leaders love to tell is, well, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a radio talk show host, which is true, but has nothing to do with why I really got into podcasting, at least not in the beginning. I was teaching a class on networking and body language, and I was teaching, it was like an elective, not even quite that lofty, at the University of Michigan Law School back in 2005 or 2006, I think it was, and people were coming in and out, and it wasn't exactly like an attendance thing, and I started holding it at a pub or a bar, Uh, and... I kept having to repeat myself. Now, I won't say in my lectures because that's too highbrow. I was talking at people in a bar or more or less. And so I kept having to re... Yeah, excuse me. I'm a little tongue-tied. I kept having to repeat myself. And the thing was, is I was getting frustrated and angry about doing that. Kind of like when you tell a toddler 17 times not to do something. And so I started to burn my talks to Sony Minidisc, which nobody had. And then I realized I should burn them to CD, which everybody had, which is unfortunate because Minidisc was far superior, but that's a different podcast for a different kind of geek. And, yep. I, and <laughs> I kept losing the CDs. So I started saying, okay, you gotta pay me five bucks for the CD so that I would get it back. You know, And then people would go, oh, five bucks, great. I want five of these. One for my roommate, one for my brother. And I'm like, they're not for sale. This is course material. And then I raised the price to 20 bucks and guys would say, fine, I only want three then. And I thought, like, all right, I'm selling this information, but that's—I'm not going to get rich off twenty dollars CDs. What if I gave the information away because I'm going to be a lawyer anyway? I don't need the money for this. You know, charge people for in-person or phone coaching, but I don't need to sell the info. And my friend goes, "There's this new thing again, 2006. There's this new thing I read about on a blog. It's called podcasting." you can upload the MP3 file to the internet. And I thought, that's a great idea because then I can just point people to it. And we are we were messing around with like the University of Michigan file system and can you share a file with other people publicly? Yes, but they have to log in using their unique name and it's like, oh God. So it was just a huge mess. That's kind of funny to look back on because now in the days of YouTube, SoundCloud, podcasting, you couldn't host a freaking MP3 file on the internet for the public. It just wasn't a thing that you could really do. And so we rented server space from GoDaddy. And I think we had some sort of early version of WordPress. And we would link the file up and GoDaddy, after the first week was like, guys, you can't just give away mp3 files, this is for web hosting, your bandwidth is going out. And we had a lot of trouble with it. And we've dealt with that trouble for a while, I think until we found Libsyn and other places like that that were actually hosting podcasts professionally and not going to yell at us after 10 days of the month saying we were 80% over our bandwidth for the month.
0: Yeah, I've heard other people in the early days saying it was a game of whack-a-mole, changing, changing the hosting provider until the podcasting providers came around because all the domain providers were like, no, no, you're overloading our system. Stop right. it. Stop it. Exactly. So, so, okay, let's say you've got the podcast going and going through it. Now, you're very famous for obviously you were talking about doing a networking course there. What is the embryo of that networking course? There was somebody in your life, I think, from the story I've heard, who sure. told you that networking was the way forward. It was the secret to your future, I believe.
1: It was, yeah. And of course, when I was young, 27, 28, in starting a Wall Street law firm, I thought, like, networking's for old people. I don't need to do this. This is silly. It's not interesting. And it's schmoozy and gross and icky and used car salesman-y, and I don't want anything to do with it. But then one of the guys who'd hired me at this law firm, his name was Dave, and he was never in the office, but he was supposed to be my mentor, which HR just assigns these people to be your mentor. It's not really a mentor-mentee relationship. And he was never there, so they made him check in with me one day, and I remember asking him, how come you're never in the office? It's the deal. How come you're one of the youngest partners, but you're never in the office? Why are you... How is this possible? And he told me that he was developing business for the firm, so he didn't have to sit in the office and grind out briefs He had to check other people's work that was more important what was really important was for him to be schmoozing with investment bankers which were our clients when we were at the finance firm and i was like wait a second that's how people find us they pick you because they like you and i almost thought that seems kind of unfair and i said something to that effect and he said yeah it's an unfair advantage so you want to make sure it's your unfair advantage something along those lines and i thought that's really brilliant because of course i'm not thinking about that at age 27 but i also knew that i was kind of a knucklehead and i wasn't going to be a great lawyer and possibly gonna get fired from this law firm. And so this to me was kind of like a secret superpower that I could start developing as a first year associate. And by the time everybody was a fifth, sixth, seventh year, whatever associate, and they were like, oh, no, I've got a network to bring in business and make partner. I would already have half a decade of experience and know what I was doing and possibly was able to keep pace with these really smart and skilled kids who were going to become great lawyers just by virtue of the fact that they were brilliant. And so that was kind of my plan was I'm going to outwork them in the people skills department because I can't really win in the brains department. <laughs> so that was my plan.
0: Uh, strangely a friend of mine simon sharp he's head of lloyd's of london exactly the same thing his life story and he's skiing in moritz or he's taking them to the caribbean or he's going to i don't know, dinner at the devoy and i go simon that is not a life that's not work he goes it is get all my renewals and he's very successful now i heard a story today about you which is that you've got a little secret to your network in which is you write down the name of the person you meet and then three months later you reconnect. Is that true?
1: Yeah, not quite that robotic. I do keep people's names inside what's essentially a CRM, which for corporate people is like Salesforce. For me, I use Connection Fox, and what I do is I just put in people's information, it looks at my email, I tell it when I've reached out to people, when I've talked to people, and it'll just say, hey, within whatever time window, let's say 90 days, you haven't talked to Sam Seti in 90 days. You should probably go ahead and do that. And so I go, ah, okay. So that Monday, I pick maybe four or five people. Actually, I call it Connect Four because I try to do it to four people a day, but now it, it starts to become more automated, not even automated, more habitual, I should say, for me to do it this way. And I've developed these systems where I one to four per day, Connect 4 is nice. got a nice ring to it, of course. And I reach out to those people and then I go into Connection Fox and I say, who have I talked to this week? Yes, 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 yes. And then, ah, here's five people who I've neglected for a while. And I'll reach out to them. And it's pretty simple. I'm not trying to sell them anything. I really do just check in and say, daughter started walking. Your kids are a few years ahead of mine. When do they start having super fun conversations or when do they stop wetting the bed, whatever whatever it is. Sorry, my kids are going to hate me when they listen to this in a decade. <laughs> and that kind of stuff gets people talking. I'm not really reaching out with any sort of agenda. I'm just keeping the plate spinning. And often they'll say something like, e- between you and I, thinking about making a jump from this company from Nike, you know, anyone else who's in the shoe industry? And I go, okay, I go to connection Fox again. And I say shoe business and whoever works at Reebok or whatever ASICS shows up in there. And I say, yeah, I actually do know somebody in HR at this company or no, I don't, but I know a couple of shoe designers. That's probably not going to help you. Or the only person I know is in the shoe business, but they work in Pakistan. Does that help you as a manufacturing contact? So I can just sort of reach out and see where can I be of service to people that i'm talking to and i don't really look for what they can do for me i'm just cutting who can i connect them to what can i do for them and then if i do ever need anything usually i've got a very warm network of people that i've kept in touch with for months and or years who i've helped out one time or another or at least tried to so when i do need something I don't get that awkward feeling where I go, oh gosh, I have to ask this person for something and I haven't talked to them in five years and they have, why would they help me? I'm going, "Ah, I'm just reaching out to a friend who maybe kind of owes me one or I don't feel awkward asking for a little bit of help because that's our relationship and I've set the pace and the tone for that relationship over the past few years. And so that's super useful and it helps everybody in my network because again, I'm trying to figure out how to basically give them value so nobody gets annoyed by it.
0: Mm. And is this the basis of your six-minute networking course that you you do?
1: Yeah, that's the basis of the course. The course is free, and it's a version of what I've taught in corporate, military, government over the past, I don't know, 11, eh, 15 15 years in one form or another, I guess you would say, 16.
0: And is this why you put down the success of your show because you also have some amazing guests. How do you get these guests? Is that through that networking as well?
1: Generally, yes. I mean, Of course, every podcaster is familiar with the press releases we get in our inbox. But when it comes to, let's say, interviewing somebody like Kobe Bryant, RIP Kobe Bryant, that's more like, hey, I've got a fantastic oppor- opportunity for you. <laughs> this guy, you're never going to get him again. It's the stars have aligned, but you have to be in Orange County tomorrow morning at seven because ESPN just flaked on a time slot, and he's already going to be doing media. And I'm like, yep, see you there. That's the kind of thing that happens when your network is strong. It's not just about waiting to see what comes into your inbox. It's creating, I guess you would call it, more, more surface area for serendipity and luck to come into your life. It's not any sort of—I metaf- want to clear this out. It's not a sort of metaphysical nonsense like manifest your whatever. This is— Help a lot of people over a long period of time. Be consistent with it. And at some point, one of those, I don't know, 2,000 people that are in your Rolodex are going to come back with something every month or so-ish. Yeah. And sometimes those opportunities are pretty darn good.
0: Some people might call that just great karma. Um, Yeah, sure. (laughs) So with, with these guests, when did you find the tipping point went from you going out to finding guests and people now coming to you going, hey, you've got to be on Jordan Harbinger's show. He's got the reach of 5 million downloads. When did you feel that tipping point went over?
1: I would say I still have to chase people pretty hard really? and you'd be surprised because you'll get a celebrity pitch in your inbox like, do you want to interview, I let me see, Mark Cuban? Sure, why not? right? But then you're like, oh, here's an author who had a book that came out 10 years ago who's been retired and now fishes off the end of a dock in Florida every day. And you gotta email that guy like 15 times, right? And, or you reach out to somebody who is just, not just busy or retired, but somebody who might be a little bit media shy or thinks that podcasts are things that people do in their basement, which to be fair, they kind of are, but it's real media now. Maybe they don't even know what a podcast is. And they'll, I've had people say, I don't really want to be on your podcast because I don't use social media. And then I have to explain that a podcast isn't TikTok and there will be no dancing. Uh, And that's that's a shame. Yeah, I'm waiting
0: for the bit where we started. Depends on the
1: podcast, I suppose. But yeah, there's a lot of, you'd be surprised. People all think like, oh, you must just have guests falling in your lap. You do, but you don't. Not always the ones you want. And a lot of the people that I interview they don't really love media. One of the guys was one of the most prolific counterfeiters of US currency that's ever probably been caught anyway. Uh, and he, even then he wasn't caught. And he didn't want to do media because he's a <laughs> criminal. A yeah. Or a former criminal, he's actually a very nice guy, but yeah, he's a criminal. Uh, other people, uh, yes, exactly. I, In fact, Catch Me If You Can, I had, that was episode one, Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can, who turned out to be the biggest con of all. But I've had a lot of people on the show that they want me to blur their voice, but then when we start talking, they realize, that's eh, it's fine, They're, I could just say it was all for novelty, just don't show my face, whatever it is, or former undercover cops that don't really want to get whacked by the motorcycle gang they infiltrated, a lot of that kind of thing. And so you do have to chase people and gain their trust before you even put a microphone in front of their face. Getting people who are on their book tour, that's the easy part. But if you want a podcast that's more interesting than here's who's currently hawking a book, then you have to do a little bit of legwork. I don't care who you are. And when I talk to people who have really large shows, like I I was talking with Trevor Noah and Chelsea Handler, who in the United States run these very large television shows. And I said, what's the thing about your job that you find the most tedious? Because you've really made it to the top. And they say, oh, booking guests. And I'm thinking, really? Booking guests is a pain in the ass? And I've heard Howard Stern, not personally, but he was talking about it with Conan O'Brien on Conan O'Brien's podcast. And he goes, booking guests is just such a pain, isn't it? And they both, Jim, these are the largest talk show hosts on the planet, or at least in the Western world. And they're just complaining that booking guests is a huge pain in the neck. So to all podcasters out there, If you are upset that booking guests is hard, then get used to it, because Howard Stern, Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Kimmel, Chelsea Handler, and Trevor Noah all think that's the biggest pain in the ass part of their job. And if they haven't transcended this, none of us ever will. So settle in and just respect that that's part of the job.
0: Okay. So of all these amazing guests you've had, come on, who's been the best and who's been the worst?
1: Yeah, that's funny. The best is always subjective. I will say that some of the funnest guests are usually based on an experience that I've had, not necessarily their performance or some other thing, their personality. Howie Mandel is a very famous comedian in the United States. He's also the host of America's, one of the hosts, judges, I should say, of America's Got Talent, and which oh, is yeah. an international yep. show with different hosts everywhere. And that was one of the funnest shows I ever did, not just because he's a super generous and nice guy, which he is, but because they invited me to his office, I showed up, his whole crew was there, they gave us the whole afternoon, he gave us a tour of his office, showed us all these little things that he's gathered over 30, 40 years, whatever it is, in show business. And then when we were done, after a really fun show with him making fun of me, joking around, taking a bunch of photos, when we were done, he's like, hey, you guys want to watch America's Got Talent? We're just, crew's going to settle in and watch. So I sit down with Howie Mandel and watch last night's episode of America's Got Talent. And I'm just sitting there with the director's cut of him explaining, you know what I liked about them? Oh, well, they cut this part out. But after this happened, and I'm thinking, this is so cool because this is one of the top primetime shows Nobody knows these people, these judges. Nobody's sitting there, maybe their family, but nobody else is sitting there with one of the judges and getting a director's cut narr- narration of the show play-by-play on the couch in the office. It's just that not you couldn't buy that experience, really. And so that was a really cool episode for me because I was there with my wife, my, one of my friends, a photographer, one of my producers, and we were just sitting there like, is this really happening? This is pretty cool. I'm not even a television guy. But you have to admit, if you're sitting there with somebody who's narrating a show that they're on and telling you what got cut out and what they liked, I mean, it's just, it's a pretty special experience. So that was pretty good. Pretty bad, Uh, you hate to say it, but this isn't, it's not a famous person, but I've had some just batshit crazy people on the show. One guy showed up like three hours early because he didn't know how to work time zones on his calendar, even though he'd accepted the calendar invite for the proper time. We had sent him to a recording studio because he was a little bit older and didn't know how to work the gear and all this stuff. So the guys at the studio were like, hey, your guest is here, but we're on for noon. It's 9 a.m. So we told him he was three hours early. We couldn't start yet because the studio had other things to do, and so did I. And this guy just lost his freaking mind at these kids who run a recording studio in Georgia that I've never met that don't work for me. And then he called my wife and let her have it. For no reason because well, he couldn't get a hold of me. Jeez. So he leaves, and my wife's like, I just want to cancel it. And I said, I already did all the prep work. Let him come back. Who cares? So we let him come back. He did the whole show. It was okay. Kooky. We edited it down. And afterwards, he's sending me all these kinds of threatening things like you better not do this and you better not edit me to look that bad this way. And I thought, this guy is off his rocker. And then he finally agreed to let us air the show. We air the show, and he said, I want to talk to you. I've got a bone to pick with you. And then he didn't show up for the call that he demanded we make uh, where he was going to yell at me because he died. Oh, yeah. God. So that was one of the weirdest experiences that I've had, <laughs> oh, My God. booking a guess.
0: <laughs> he was probably shouting at somebody else and had a heart attack. Yeah. Um, I d-
1: imagine him going by just screaming his head off at, like, somebody in a Burger King drive-thru, and that was the last straw for his little ticker was a very strange guy.
0: So a couple of questions now, next, first of all, video, you, you clearly are into the video element of podcasting as well. You sit on the fence. Is YouTube going to be the next big area for growth? Are you into your TikTok? You mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. If you're growing your podcast, do you think videos are required now, or is it just a pure audio medium that you'd prefer?
1: I prefer the audio medium. Uh, There's a million reasons for that. I don't know how much you care about those reasons. The video that I do is because I have so many people, I, I actually have a channel manager who has millions of subscribers on a channel that he also runs. They manage my channel quote unquote for free. I give them a rev share. So it doesn't cost me anything to have my show filmed, edited, uploaded, tagged. It's actually ROI positive, right? We make a few grand a month from YouTube. Right. That said, I don't love YouTube because all of these inter, the stuff we do in post where I explain something, the show intro is not in there, the show close is not in there, I don't want to film myself reading the scripts for the ads, I don't want to film myself doing the intro and the outro, any sort of correction we need to make, none of that stuff is in there, and also... I know this isn't unique to me, but it sure feels that way sometimes. The audience on YouTube, man, those people can be really mean. And the comments I get are completely ridiculous and off the wall, but the emails that I get from people who listen to the audio are all kind, thought, well thought out letters, even if this person doesn't agree with me. And so it's very, it's too easy to leave feedback or a comment on YouTube, and it's hard to do on a podcast. So I think you really have to say, hey, this show changed my life, or "You're, you are absolutely so wrong about this thing but now I've got your name because it's from your email address so there's just a different level of engagement there whereas audio you can you see people be like this guy's fat and balding and you're like what I'm fine my hairline hasn't gone anywhere since I was 14 years old. <laughs> why am I reacting to this so there's stuff like that videos are also harder to produce Uh, A lot of times you'd have to go do something in person. Two guys on a webcam is easy to produce, but let's be real, I don't find it that compelling. I don't want to watch people talk like this, like we are now on YouTube. I'd rather just listen to it. So I have my own preferences. If you're new, maybe it is quote unquote mandatory. I think if you're running a comedy podcast, it's probably mandatory because I see a lot of crazy growth in those niches on YouTube now. The problem here, my main issue with YouTube, and I'm wondering what you think, too, here, Sam. By the way, pardon the noise. There's a bulldozer in the backyard, and I just can't do anything about that. So, hopefully, the beeping That's is— okay. can't We'll hear have it. to figure that out. You're good. You're good. One thing I think is bad when it comes to YouTube and podcasting, something that just doesn't work and doesn't mix well, is— Well, I'll give you an example to illustrate it. It ends up being the tail wagging the dog here. Content gets driven by the algorithm. So if I'm doing a podcast, which I am, and I want to interview somebody who's talking about geoengineering, I can do a podcast about geoengineering. And then the next day I want to do a podcast, like I mentioned, with Counterfeiter or the Art Forger or the guy who infiltrated the motorcycle gang. I can do that and my audience goes, man, you find some interesting people. But if I put all those on YouTube, the Biker Gang one gets a million views. The Geoengineering one gets 3,000 views. And then I go, well, oh, I've got to do only podcasts with criminals because the Sammy the Bull Gravano interview did well. And the B- Biker Gang one did well. And the Yedit mafia one did well. So now I'm letting, frankly, the peanut gallery of aforementioned idiot commenters who talk about how your face is fat or whatever in the video I'm letting those people's desires and click-around habits drive my content, which is a great recipe to burnout, hate what you're doing, and I see this happen all the time. There's a a podcast I won't mention where the guy who ran it was really into neuroscience and brain... what is it, Neuralink, like we're going to have brain-machine interfaces. And he was really interested in all this kind of just crazy advanced science. And he kept trying to crack the YouTube algorithm. And so he gave up on the audio part of podcasting for the most part. The YouTube algorithm just kept going and going. And three, four, five, six years on, it's like, here's an actress that hasn't worked in five years and is talking about her new brand of shoelaces but she's all done up and people are Googling her because she just had a sex tape come out. So this is the new podcast. And people in the comments write, what happened to this show? It used to be so intelligent. And I'll tell you what happened, Sam. What happened is... Whenever he released something that was garbage or topically relevant but had some good-looking person in it or a famous person, it got a bunch of clicks. And whenever he released something that he was actually interested in, like neuroscience or brain science, he got 5,000 views and it wasn't worth producing because it cost him too much. So it became the three weird things that this famous guru person said that are going to blow your mind. And that's the three things are like wash your hands in the morning and make your bed and drink lots of water. And it's just garbage, it's rubbish, Mm. because you are now playing to the audience, but you're playing to the widest, most deluded, and possibly dumbest audience that the world actually has. That's the problem with YouTube. It drives you, it drives your business.
0: And I fully agree, I do YouTube, so I'm quite glad I'm sticking away from it. Also, I don't have a face for video, but that's another story. Yeah, Yeah,
1: face for radio, join the club, man, I'm with you. (laughs) Your face now, is fat, look, Jordan, and your receding hairline is driving me crazy. <laughs> not that it bothers me. Not that it's not- gotten under my skin.
0: <laughs> now, monetization. Okay, let's get on to that. Then You talked about ROI and YouTube. Let's park that somewhere over there. But sure. Podcasting monetization. I mean, with 5 million downloads yeah you must be getting a good cpm so is advertising the the main driver of monetization for you or is it sponsorship or is it something else that you've got that will drive monetization
1: i run ads and only ads and i don't sell anything and it used to be the inverse i used to sell and this is you know a decade ago now but i used to sell in-person coaching and phone coaching and online this and that and that was quite lucrative But I realized when I started the Jordan Harbinger show, which is the second iteration, I did another show before that had 700 plus episodes. The reason that I, one of the reasons that I left was I didn't like the training. I didn't like sales and email marketing and all that stuff. So when I started my new business, I was like, wait a minute. I can do live programs and I can make more money, but man, am I gonna be burned out? And the logistics are are tough and the sales cycle is tough and yada, yada, yada. And then I thought, oh, I'll just sell online courses which maybe I'll do, but the problem is if you are reliant on online course sale sales, you've got to launch special 30% off this weekend only because you need a new car, right? Or, hey, we're releasing a new edition and it's gonna blow your mind. It's, scientists are scratching their head about all that, and you're writing copy, and you're making videos, and you're doing this launch, and you've got affiliates, And you, and I really did not want to do that either. So now, if I sell something, I can just give all the money to charity, or I can, not worry about it if it doesn't sell as well because i didn't write misleading sales copy i just told people what it was and said here's where you can buy it and i sold half of what i normally would but i don't care because that's not how i survive i will shill mattresses like any other podcaster but the audience knows the score when they hear an ad for a mattress or a food company or a athletic greens or whatever they get it they get that the sponsor supports the show they want to support the show so they support that sponsor they find products they love it's different with online courses because you almost ha- you have to make big promises and ideally you deliver, but it's almost like, well, and if you don't, you know, but then you've got to do that again and again and again. And I'm like, do I want to be in the business of creating and marketing online courses or do I just want to read books and talk to smart people and then pause for a break and talk about some insurance? And that is a much better way for me personally to make a living. The caveat, the problem, the asterisk by this is that that only works if you have scale, right? If I had 10,000 downloads per episode, me saying I'm just gonna survive off of blue apron ads, not reasonable, not feasible. But if you've got 10 times that, 20 times that, whatever, now you're talking about real money for your family, a workload that you can handle, and then, doing a live training that costs a bunch of money that you have to sell people into and then hope they don't get a refund or whatever, that money is marginally less valuable because you don't need it. And I know a lot of guys who are hardcore into that stuff and they make a bunch of money, but man, are they miserable. And so for me, I know my happy place is doing the jordan harbinger show reading a book about it from a scientist interviewing that scientist putting it up there and then every wednesday doing a bunch of reads for some therapy some mattresses some green juice calling it a day rinse and repeat go play with my kids that's what i want to be doing i don't want to be farting around with all this other stuff
0: are you sell the ad space yourself or are you outsourced to like something like an a or whatever yeah.
1: Podcast one sells my ads, but I sell I have a certain amount of inventory. I think it's ten percent, but I'm you don't really split hairs over this, where I can do direct deals. So some sponsors come directly to me, usually really small businesses, sometimes something that a friend of a friend owns. Hey, I own an online personal training company. Do you think podcast ads would work for me? Hey, let's test it. I'll give you a really low rate. There's no other agencies, salespeople taking a commission. Let's do a low rate, see if it works. And then if it does, they'll renew. But of course, they renew directly with me because why am I going to give somebody a cut? But the majority of my ads are sold through Podcast One. And, you know, I'm sold out, so I can't complain.
0: That's great. Now, one of the other things I know you do and do really well is you do a lot of marketing, you go and do cross promotions, you go and reach out to other shows. Was that something as part of your networking thought process that you said, yeah, actually this is the next way in podcasting for me to do it. It's sort of me networking with other podcast hosts get the awareness into their tribe, into their fan base. Was that something you did consciously?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, I did that early on. I did a lot of swaps. I do a lot of swaps now. I pa- I didn't, I wouldn't say fully paused, but I stopped doing as many swaps the last two years. And I dedicated a few million dollars to buying ads on other shows. One, I thought it would be cool to support creators that I knew were going to give me a dynamite read, but weren't necessarily having the easiest time selling ads. I wanted to, and those worked like a charm. And I also wanted to scale fast. And that's what I found. I found that swaps are great because they're free. You give an ad, somebody else gives an ad, or you do one-to-one impression swap, which is what I do. But what I found was, I think I tried this four or five years ago. I went, okay, I wanna do as many swaps as I can. And I made a Trello board and it was like, let me do a swap, let me do a swap, let me do a swap. And it took like a month to get somebody to do one ad swap. And I thought, okay, this is tough, and then towards the end of the year when I really had the process down, I was doing, on average, one swap every two or three weeks. But then, if you buy ads from shows, maybe even those same shows, you can do the amount of swaps I did in one year, you can do that in two days. Because the salesperson takes your money, they make the host do the host read, they ensure that the ad is inserted and trafficked and there you go. So if you're relying on a creator to just kind of understand the value of the swap and then execute it, you're gonna be disappointed. But if you buy it, it's just so much faster, there's a lot less legwork for you because that salesperson and the network does a lot of the work. So I found that it was a really good, very quick way to scale the show. The problem is it's expensive, right? I mean, like I said, I spent probably like 4 million bucks over the past few years on ads. Yeah. 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 Cha-ching.
0: So, okay. So given everything you've said so far, would you say it was the content, the marketing or the networking that's given you the most success?
1: You know, the, I'll say the content, not just because that's the answer everybody wants to hear, but the truth of the matter is, the networking, great, it builds you opportunities. The marketing, great, it builds you scale, but here's the problem. You can market the crap out of something, but if it's a crap product, you're in trouble. And I, the metaphor that I like to use is, if you walk to a well and you've got a bucket, and you you've got holes drilled in the bottom of the bucket, by the time you get back to your house, a bunch of the water is gone you need to have a really good show to retain the people that find you through the marketing. So if I'm spending 4 million bucks on marketing. I want to retain the bulk and not even the bulk, a decent percentage of those listeners. I want those people to subscribe, listen to shows they find interesting. I don't, what I don't want is people to listen to one and go, God, this is terrible. It's been recorded in the bathroom. The guy's using AirPods. He doesn't have a proper mic. He doesn't edit. He doesn't prep. The, these questions are terrible. The guest seems disinterested. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in a show. So that was one reason why I took so long to market the show, is because I wanted to dial in my skill set, my interview technique, because you're really wasting, you're lighting your own money on fire if you start to market something that doesn't have good retention. You're never gonna retain even probably half the people that find you through advertising, it's just the way things work. But if you're losing 99% of them, that's a big problem. So work instead on something that retains, let's say 10% of people over time, and now you've 10xed your retention, which means you can spend one-tenth as much money and get the same bang for your buck and that's a big lever to pull so it's the content cool
0: that's what i was hoping you were going to say yeah now one of the reasons i reached out to you originally was you are now starting to experiment with a new way of monetizing it's called value for value uh, it's using the satoshi payment system which is the micro payment system from bitcoin when did you first hear about this, and why are you starting to look at this as another channel for monetization?
1: Edit out the part where I'm blowing my nose. <laughs> Ugh, sorry, yeah, value for value is something that I looked at for a long time, didn't really care much about and i I'm not like anti crypto. I've had Bitcoin for probably like ten years now, so I understand the appeal, I understand the value, I understand the pitfalls. I just didn't bother with setting myself up for, hey, people can pay me $5 if they like an episode, or $1, or a fraction of a penny, as the case may be. But now I think I've gotten, over the years, so many tweets from people that said, why can't I leave you money in value for value? Why can't I leave money on your show? Why aren't you using, let's say, the Fountain app, for example? And the reason was, because I didn't bother to do this very simple configuration where you set up a lightning wallet, which I have already am very familiar with, the the thing that pushed me over the edge was several tweets in a row over a couple days, and I thought, okay, even if these people each just gave me a buck, it would be worth the five or 10 minutes where I set up this lightning wallet. And who knows, maybe if I talk about this and I'm showing up in this app or this app ecosystem, I start to make some real money and i can donate that money to charity which is something i usually do for stuff like this but it also gave me an opportunity a lot of people would write in and go hey i live in australia i can't buy a mattress from the people that you're talking about i can't get the auto insurance from the people that you're talking about i can't buy the car that you guys are talking about i really can't do anything what can i do i've left you a review i tell my friends about your show what else can i do and the answer was nothing or you can log into PayPal, here's my address, you can send me money, then you can pay a fee on that money and then I can take the balance of that money and maybe I can get a beer with it, right? Whatever. Right. Sort of a pain in the butt, not romantic in, in the way, not sexy in the way that a lot of listeners want to want to do. So what? now with value for value, someone can go, man, that episode was really good. Bing! And they gave me a buck or five bucks as the case may be for a lot of the users. And I, they can leave me a note in the app like Fountain and I can like it or they can send me something and I think that gives me, when I reply, I think I get some money from that, depending, or some Satoshis from that, depending on yeah. how things are set up. Yeah. And that's really cool. Because for me, it's not about monetization. Mm-hmm. It's actually been more about giving fans a way to help support the show where they previously could not. And I know people are like, oh, boo-hoo, people couldn't give you money or people can give you money now. I think there's something psychological going on where a fan can invest in you, and it can be not money. You can have a fan leave you a review online or sign up to your email list and get your newsletter, whatever that investment means to you. But I think it strengthens the community element, which is one reason why I reply to every email that I get. I reply to every social media DM that I get. Uh, I check my spam folder because a lot of stuff ends up in there. We have an advice show every friday where i answer listener questions that's me investing in the community of listeners and the fans reinvesting in the show if i tell somebody how to get a raise and they get a thirty-five thousand dollars raise which just happened yesterday that person is going to love me forever they're probably going to listen for like a decade because the roi has been enormous for them so i like to do that a little bit each day and i think that builds a really loyal fan base which now so i'm not surprised and people say i've been listening to you for 10 years i've been listening to you for eight years i've been listening to you for five years three years that's a long time you get more of that when you allow your audience to invest in you whatever that means and so the more ways there are to invest in the jordan harbinger show the better and if somebody's really into bitcoin and crypto and wants to do value for value and they want to give me a buck every time they hear an episode they like great because it's not about the money it's about the investment, which equals retention, which is pr- way better than the dollar or $5 they just gave me because it probably cost me 20 to $40 to get a new listener that's going to listen for five years in a row.
0: Yeah, And so so I love that. The Boostergram, obviously, is the mechanism of leaving a comment with a payment. There's another uh, element to what Fountain are doing, which is the streaming sat, which is the per-minute payment. So you could say, as a listener... As I'm listening to Jordan Harmiger, I want to give him 100 sats per minute. And as long as I listen through his show, at the point I drop off where I, as people say, I've received all the value I want from that show, uh, I drop off. But that's the amount I've paid him. Do you think if that behavior becomes the norm as opposed to, I'm going to listen to the whole show, uh, I'm or I'm just going to pay for what I want. Do you think that might change the length of shows or change your behaviour in shows? Again, you were talking about YouTube changing other people's behaviour because of the feedback cycle they were getting, and he went from the Neurolink to talking about Pam Anderson's boobs, let's say. Yes, um, exactly. So would you go from our show, if you could then see if this model ever took off to the extent we believe it will, that actually there's a massive dropout at 45 minutes every week. So, hey, I'm just going to do 45 minute shows. Do you think that might be something?
1: It it could be. Although I think we're giving a lot of podcasters way too much credit for looking at their analytics and data and going, (laughs) oh, okay. Well, here's my ideal drop. Here's the drop off point. So I'm going to start redoing the format to You don't know if people are dropping off because your content slows down around 45 minutes or if the average commute is X and therefore yeah. You know, I've had people email me, the average commute is 20 minutes. Your show needs to be 20 minutes long. And I'm thinking, well, how about no? Uh, I'll do what I want and you do whatever you want. I only listen to the first 20 minutes because my commute's 20 minutes long. Well, let me rearrange my entire business for you. <laughs> no thanks. Uh, it's yeah. just moronic stuff like that. I don't think people are going to keep an eye on their analytics that much. And I also don't think that it's worth so this is a creative process i don't think that it's necessarily worth doing that because remember the primary revenue model for podcast most podcasters is going to be let's say the top half is going to be advertising so if it's advertising and i have to do an hour-long show to put four or five ads in there I'm not going to do a 30-minute show and put two ads in there because I'm getting 100 sats, which is what, like a penny or something like yeah, that per yeah. per minute of listening? From uh, Even if it's the majority of users, it's not going to equal what you get for doing a Blue Apron ad read for $7,000, right? So it's just not going to work that way unless you're in a very unique position like my show doesn't do ads at all but it's still got enough scale where I'm earning, let's say a thousand dollars per minute or $500 per minute or even a hundred dollars per minute from people giving me X number of sats per minute listened. I doubt it because also remember, I don't necessarily pay that much more production wise for an hour long show versus a 45 minute show. So if I'm getting paid per minute, what do I care if people drop off at 45 out of 60? Right, it yeah. doesn't cost me anything to make the extra 15 minutes of the show. I'm sure it does at some level, but not really.
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting perspective. The two questions I want to ask to finish this off with then is Logan, exclusive on Spotify. Yeah. 200 million allegedly. Would you ever consider doing an exclusive going straight into that and just you know, no ads, nothing else. I'm going into a one one-hit show. So I'm taking the Jordan Harbinger show, taking it off every other platform, and I'm going straight into Spotify.
1: I have thought about this, and I've had some tempting offers in the past, but the answer is usually no. Now, if you offer me two hundred million dollars, <laughs> let's have the next. Let's do part two where I eat those words. We'll have it on my yacht, right? Okay. Um, we'll record it on my yacht. I've got I got that stored here. I'm coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But not really, and the reason is because I thought about this, and I may be missing something, but okay, let's say that I get an exclusive deal from Spotify, and let's say that it's $20 million over five years, whatever, <clears throat> spitballing. Now, I go to Spotify, and I can retire after that, but I really love doing my show. All right, so i go to spotify and i do this for five years and then when it's time to leave i go you know you gotta renew me for 20 million more dollars for five more years or even perhaps better and they go "No, not really because when you went from everybody being able to hear you you had and for the sake of math let's do a hundred thousand downloads per episode that's not what would get you that mg on spotify just to be clear but when you took your hundred thousand dollar or it's a hundred thousand member audience and you became exclusive on spotify we saw maybe a 60% drop, and I bet you it's more like 80, but whatever. Let's say it was 60%. So now when they go to renew your contract, your audience is smaller. Okay, uh, well, I'm going to not be exclusive. Okay, good luck going back into mainstream everywhere and then trying to rebuild your audience because that's not really going to work. You're, you've still lost everyone. So now you've got to somehow advertise that you're available everywhere Good luck. How are you going to do that? What are you going to do? Tell your existing listeners to tell their friends? Fine. Like, no one's ever thought of that. That's not going to get you your audience back. So you're constantly giving away leverage because you're constantly decimating your audience. Now, again, if you're Joe Rogan, you don't really care. You've got enough people that are just migrating over to Spotify. That was the idea. But if you're the average Joe and you're going to give your audience up for, let's say, it's $5 million over five years, well, you're not probably you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table could probably make a few million dollars a year not going exclusive and then you can do it for as long as you want to instead of trying to just hope and pray that spotify is going to renew your deal and it's not going to be it's not going to be what i think it is cuz you have no leverage now so i wouldn't do that because i'm not necessarily optimizing for where am i going to get the biggest deal if podcast 1 offers me 2 million and spotify offers me 2.5 but i got to ditch half my audience to do it i'm not taking that deal it's a bad deal and i've seen a lot of creators get really screwed over i've seen i won't mention the show but there was a the, 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 there's a couple shows that i'm thinking of where they they were so smug they went to spotify they got an exclusive deal they had this massive show that had really just taken off and it was just an absolute smash hit. They went to Spotify exclusively. When their deal ended, they didn't get a renewal. They came back and nobody cared. Crickets, why? Because there were a million clones that had already started to take off in the mainstream decentralized podcast ecosystem. Nobody cared about them anymore. Nobody knew about them anymore. And so then they just, now they're like, oh, well, I'll start a new show. And it's like, oh, I guess we actually just caught lightning in a bottle, but they threw it away. They took an exclusive deal. And I've seen a lot of creators do that.
0: Okay, and last question Jordan, one of the big trends here in the UK for some of the biggest podcasts is now to go live, as in not just live broadcast, but also live arena and taking their show on the road, I guess is the best way of describing it. Is that something that you would want to do with your show? Do you think that format would suit your show?
1: I think it's fun. I had my doubts for a long time. But Hyundai, which is a car company, was kind enough to sponsor a live show that I didn't even originally want to do. I mean, I gave my network hell and they were like, here's the, what they're gonna pay you. And I was like, fine. Again, every girl has her price. So <laughs> I was like, fine. I called my friend Ryan Holiday, who's an author. He writes a lot of books about stoicism and stuff like that. He's a really super smart guy. And I said, can you do me a favor and fly to LA in a pandemic and do a live show with me? And he said, sure, why not? So we did the live show. It was a hell of a lot of fun. Now I would absolutely do it again. The trick was having a corporate sponsor where I don't have to worry about, it. our ticket sales going to be enough to pay for the venue and the production? That I don't want to stress about. I don't want to be hawking tickets, giving them away at the last minute so the room doesn't look empty, yada, yada. yada. I just want to have everything taken care of and then do the live show. So, yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. What I don't want to do is be on the hook for essentially selling out a live event. When Hyundai sponsored the show, I was able to sell tickets for like 30 bucks because it all I had to do was kind of—I don't think I had to pay for anything. And we ended up donating some of those pro, ticket proceeds to charity, paying for flying in Ryan Holiday, putting them up at a hotel, that kind of thing. That was it. I liked that and it was a lot of fun. Live audience was good energy. I would do something like that. think that would be a heck of a lot of fun. But again, I need a corporate sponsor to say, hey, we're covering the production part because I don't want to have to deal with that.
0: Jordan Harbinger, thank you so much for your time. I could talk to you for ages, but you know, we have to end the podcast at some point eventually. Thanks for all the info. I mean, again, just getting under your hood and just finding out how you've made your podcast so successful through the various mechanisms. It's been fascinating. Jordan, before I go, where can everyone find you? I mean, sure. that, that's hard, but let me just ask you anyway.
1: Yep. The show is called the Jordan Harbinger show. And yes, I thought of that name myself. Uh, well, th- at least the name of the show and it's available anywhere you get your podcasts and I look, if you like podcasts and you enjoyed this interview and I wasn't too grading on you, then you'll probably enjoy me talking with smart people because I talk a lot less but the interviews are still good, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> they are very good indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank
1: you. Thank you.